One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. A looming general election, a party on the verge of a historic landslide, a leader with an iron-like grip on message discipline, waging war on complacency. Sound familiar? A new dawn has broken, has it not? Education, education and education. Tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime. A politics of courage and honesty and trust. Welcome to Lessons in a Landslide, an exclusive Red Box podcast series to mark 20 years since New Labour swept to power with 418 MPs. Recorded before Theresa May triggered her snap election, I've spoken to all of the key players in the 1997 campaign about life on the political front line and those infamous behind-the-scenes battles, including Peter Mandelson, Alistair Campbell and Angie Hunter. But we begin with the man at the centre of it all, Tony Blair. The new Labour frontman reflects on his paranoia that he might blow it all, his unsolvable conflicts with Gordon Brown and his sadness at Blair right now being a dirty word in the party he led to three election victories. For 18 years... 18 long years, my party has been in opposition. It could only say it could not do. Today, we are charged with the deep responsibility of government. Today, enough of talking. It is time now to do. We began by asking him if he'd always wanted to be Prime Minister. No, I I never thought I would be Prime Minister. Uh, actually, for a large part of my youth, I never had any interest in politics at all. I mean, if you told me when I was aged 18 or 19 that I was going to go into politics, never mind be Prime Minister, I would have not just dismissed the idea, but treated it with horror. Um, so I got involved in politics a bit later. And even when I got into Parliament, I never had any thought of becoming Prime Minister because I was so much on the kind of moderate wing of the Labour Party that I thought... Which wasn't the mood of the times. Which wasn't the mood of the times, and, and it wasn't the traditional route to the leadership. The traditional route to the leadership was to be on the left and maybe then you moderated, whereas I sort of was already in a, in a, a sort of very much centrist position. And so then when you became leader on July the 21st, 1994, at that point... How confident were you about them becoming Prime Minister? Well, I thought that we had the right message for the country, which was of a reformed Labour Party, 
then modernising the country. So I, I was very confident of the message, but w when you've lost four elections in a row, including one that a lot of people thought we might have won in 1992, then you're, you're naturally pretty hesitant. And I spent most of the next few years in, in an almost um, psychotic state of, of anti-complacency. Yeah, this, this is the message which has come across from everyone who I've spoken to work on the campaign, and it all seemed to come from you. Don't be complacent. Always fearing that it could be a repeat of 92. Yes, and, and that was also part, it was partly to keep everyone, everyone on their toes and make sure that they were working really hard for victory. And it was partly to reassure the public that we weren't, you know, taking it for granted. Because I always thought if they got any sense of that, then not merely would it irritate them, but they might fear that a Labour Party in government would revert to the Labour Party that they had rejected very, very clearly in those previous four elections. And so... You know, there was never, this, this gets lost in the mists of time now, but there was never any doubt that we were going to be a different type of Labour Party. And in my view, that was absolutely central to our winning and central to our carrying on winning. Because I always had this idea that Labour could win an election as a, as a kind of protest against the government in order to give the Tories a breather before they resumed their natural role of, as the governing party. But if Labour wanted to change the country, it had to govern for more than one term and it had to govern for more than one term with a significant majority. So you described uh, in an interview during the campaign how New Labour was very much your own creation. How, how important was the new in New Labour? The new was vital. I mean, without the new, there wouldn't have been that size of majority for sure. And I don't think we would have then won successive majorities. Um, because, you know, people, the, the times had moved on and people wanted a party that was committed to, to the traditional values of social justice, but accepted that, you know, you needed a thriving enterprise sector, you know, that we weren't going to turn the clock back on the Thatcher reforms that basically people more or less accepted. You know, you weren't going to put British Airways back into public ownership, for example. You know, you weren't going to scrap the legal framework for trade unions. You know, you weren't going to go back to sort of 80, 90% rates of tax. So all of these things were part of what, frankly, is just was the new settlement of the times. What we wanted to do was take things in a, in a different direction on um, investment in public services, on helping those who are most vulnerable, and things like you know the minimum wage and the social changes, civil partnerships, and so on. Um, so we had a we had a whole set of changes we wanted to make, but they didn't depend on disturbing the previous settlement. On the contrary, they depended on building on it. And so, it, it, when you actually get into the actual campaign, do you enjoy campaign? Do you enjoy the sort of hours on buses and helicopters and being out and about? I enjoy being out and about, but if, if I'm really frank about it, the trouble when you're campaigning and you're the leader, you know, I used to enjoy campaigning a lot because I enjoy interacting with people. But when you're the leader and you're, you're, you're in that type of extraordinarily hyper atmosphere, then you're aware that you're on, on the at-risk register all the time. You know, it only requires one stray remark or, you know, someone does something, uh, you know, and you're plunged into panic and chaos. So, no, I would say, you know, when you're, you're leading your party in a campaign, I mean, some people just love even that part of it. I was always very conscious of the responsibility of it.
And it was exhausting, the, the, the process of campaigning. And- yeah, the, the, the process of campaigning itself is very exhausting because you're making speeches the whole time and you're having to, to, to you know, keep incredibly focused. And then you've got big set piece interviews and so on, which can always go wrong. And, you, you know, for, for, for me, because of the Labour Party's long period in opposition and because, you know, people were still sceptical about whether it was possible for Labour really to come through, I was always aware of the enormity of the responsibility and the realisation that if I failed for any reason, then that was the Labour Party more or less finished. On the subject of interviews, what for you was the more terrifying? Doing sort of Dave or Dimbleby or, or Des O'Connor? Because it was quite a big deal when you did Des O'Connor. Des O'Connor, for sure, is much more difficult. <laughs> any, any interview when a politician is taken out of their natural habitat, which is answering questions about policy or political issues of the day, and they're, they're translated into a, con- a context of, of, you know, what are you like as a human being? You know, you're always conscious that either you may come across as, you know, just someone people don't like or, you know, it's you're just out of your routine and you're out of where, where you're comfortable. So, no, no, the, the Des O'Connor interview far more troubling than the sort of David Dimbleby type thing. <laughs> um, I want to ask you about sort of behind the scenes in the campaign because it wasn't touched on much at the time, but now we know there were, you know, there were lots of big, you had lots of big beasts around you and sometimes they locked horns, whether it was over policy or just not being in the room for the meetings and all that sort of stuff. How much time or did you or thought did you have to give to trying to manage these sort of egos in the team? I mean, I was lucky because I had a brilliant team of people you know, uh, I mean, they really were and are a brilliant team of people. I mean, Jonathan Powell and Alistair Campbell, Peter Mandelson, you know, Angie Hunter, Sally Morgan, David Miliband, Philip Gould, of course, Margaret Madonna. You know, they were an extraordinary group of people. And then you had, you know, the big political figures like Gordon Brown, John Prescott and so on. But, you know, it's in the nature of really smart, capable people, especially people able to withstand pressure, that they're people of strong opinions and views. So, you know, managing that did take some effort. Although in that first campaign, to be fair, the the, the joint venture of success was so compelling that mostly people checked their egos out at the door. Mostly, not always. But, uh, <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, the, the, there's, there's, uh, sometimes there was strong disagreement. With your relationship with Gordon, and particularly uh, Peter Madison talked about how he didn't even sort of sign off the economic policy even as John Major was calling the election. Looking back now, do you wish you'd try to sort out that relationship before you went into government? Because actually those problems then continued afterwards. I don't think it was sortable in the end because it was it was born of a... I mean, you know, of, of what was a very difficult passage when John Smith died and then I became leader. But certainly at that stage, whatever difficulties there were, were more than compensated by the enormous contribution that Gordon made. And, you know, the fact that he was there as a huge figure and carrier of a message and with, with the capability also of impressing people completely independently of my position, you know, that was enormously important. But I think... The, the essence of the problem was never, never really changed. Yeah. And so when you stood outside the Royal Festival Hall, New Dawn is Broken, you talked about how the result was moving and humbling. You spoke a lot about the responsibility of going into government. What was going through your mind as you sort of 
flew down from Sedgefield and you realised that not only had you won, you'd won by such a landslide. I mean, it was a very odd feeling that night because, first of all, as the results came in, I actually at one point got worried that I was literally looking at the screen and thinking, I think it's time the Tories won a few more seats because otherwise <laughs> this is going to get, this is going to be so big it's going to be an embarrassment and then people are going to think I've done something terrible to the constitution of the country. Because I think there was, there was a moment early in the campaign, maybe just because of the way the seats came in, that, that, you know, the Tories just had a handful and we were sort of mounting towards <laughs> 100 and I was thinking, oh my God, this is too much. And the other thing was, I mean, I think I was the, well, one of the very few sober people around that night and I was was very sober and very, very conscious of the responsibility. Were you frightened? Yeah, I, I, I was, I mean, frightened is perhaps not the right word, but I was somewhat overawed, yeah. Were you ready to be Prime Minister? Because one of the interesting things was the focus on not being complacent, but also focusing on winning the campaign meant that you and lots of other people sort of hadn't been thinking about what the process of going to government had been. Do you think you were ready? You're never ready when you come straight in yeah. off the back of um, 18 years of opposition. In that sense, you're, ne you're never ready. Um, we were ready in one way, which was very, very important. Although lots of policy was still to be decided, and that's natural. You know, an opposition party can't be expected to have all its policies worked out. And in fact, it's not even a good idea that, that it does. But we were ready in the sense that we were heavily oriented. In other words, we knew what type of government we wanted to be. We had certain clear principles established. So we, weren't, we didn't come in, you know, without a compass, but we did come in without having obviously yet done that journey and known what obstacles there are in the way. And, you know, the one thing you realise the moment you come in to government is that campaigning to be the government is completely different from governing as the government. And... You know, there is nothing really that prepares you quite for that if you haven't been in that position before. New Labour obviously created this incredibly broad coalition of public support, uh, but some people have said actually it was quite shallow and maybe you, know, maybe you, you, you won over so many people, but it, it never became sort of baked in that New Labour, you know, the, the new dawn broke in 97, but maybe the sun set in 10 years later when you left. It, it didn't become baked into the Labour Party. Yeah, I, I, I don't agree with that, actually. I mean, the truth is David Miliband won the Labour leadership election in 2010. So actually within the Labour Party at that point, there was a, there was a majority for a, for a modernising Labour Party. I think the coalition we created in the country was completely sustainable. And indeed, it was in a, in a, in a weird way, part of our coalition then went with David Cameron. You know, so, but it was still very much a centre ground coalition. Okay, it was centre-right then, not centre-left. No, I've always believed that we, we did actually get to a coalition that was sustainable in a post-industrial revolution world where some of the old structures and old coalitions had broken down. And so, you know, the Labour Party that we put together was a Labour Party of people who were um, economically in favour of social justice, but as I say, in favour of enterprise. Um, were socially liberal, were internationalist in outlook, and that coalition, I still think it exists in British politics today. It's not represented presently in British politics, but it's still there, I've got no doubt about it. To what extent do you think that the enormous 
tidal wave of support and hope and optimism that you captured in '97 is partly why now you provoke a very different reaction. The sort of hero to zero or you were really unable, it was always an impossible task for you to fill, fulfil everything that people invested in you in 97. I think it's definitely true that the expectations were colossally out of line with anything that any government could possibly do. And actually one of the really interesting things when you go back in time is you look at the what we promised was extraordinarily modest. I mean, if you take that pledge card, the famous pledge card with the five pledges on it, we, we did them all. Um, so in that sense, you could say, well, <laughs> we, we, we fulfilled our promises. But actually, when you look at them, they're incredibly modest. Uh, we ended up achieving far, far more than we ever promised, as a matter of fact. But, you know, the, the thing is, I, I mean, I still believe there's a lot of support for the basic political position. And this is to talk now about contemporary politics. But I think the polarization, particularly of the media, into a leftist and a rightist media that are very, you know, you can see this in America, you can see this elsewhere in Europe today, means that that center ground often appears to be discredited when actually I still think there's enormous latent support for those positions amongst the public. But, you know, a lot of people prefer now to inhabit their own ecosystem of politics where they talk to people who just agree with each other. And I think... Obviously, the last 10 years, I've not been in the front line of politics. I mean, if I was, you know, we would be doing things very differently in order to try and change that situation. Because I think the most dangerous thing you've got in Western politics at the moment is this polarization is now so intense that I think it becomes paralyzing for countries. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You talked a lot in your speech, I think, at the World Festival Hall and outside, number 10, about trust and the people who put trust in you. Um, actually, the, the, the narrative around spin and new labour spin and the erosion of trust, do you, think, do you think that's fair? Do you think that the... Because spin sort of went from being 
a good thing because you've got a grip on media management and, you know, you fed stories to the media and then spin became a sort of stick to beat you with. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't think it's fair because I think that in today's world, frankly, I don't know what government that came after us that didn't have a sophisticated communications machine. And nowadays, by the way, it's got to be more sophisticated because of social media. Now, I think, I think in the end, what we had was we had a governing project. I never felt in the whole 10 years I was prime minister that I was confronted with an idea that was better than ours. You know, I think when you came to the Labour government in the late 70s, and I think Jim Callaghan probably would have accepted this at the time, you felt there was a governing idea that was more powerful than the idea the Labour Party had at that time. I never felt that. And therefore, I think spin became, you know, spin became a sort of reflex where it was really born in part of a frustration that people didn't quite know how to sort of topple us and defeat us. Yes, of course, we were a powerful media machine, but my God, we had to be. And if you'd grown up in the Labour Party, as I did in the 1980s, when, you know, your leadership was getting, you know, literally eviscerated on a daily basis by, by the media, I mean, not to have adopted a proper media strategy would have been pretty foolish. I believe if we'd carried on with a modernizing project, because this is the key to me, is that the world is changing today so fast, faster today than in 2007 and much faster than in 1997. And therefore the, the spirit and the zeitgeist, if you like, that brought us to where we were in 1997, I think the irony is that even though New Labour is sort of rejected by the Labour Party today and in some sense also discredited by, of course, because it's in the right way's interest to discredit it, actually the relevance of it as a, as, a, as a concept, as an attitude, is greater today than it was even 20 years ago because the world's changing even faster. How do you feel now when New Labour and Blairites are dirty words in the party that you led? Sad because, you know, the Labour Party's only ever won when it's been a modernising project. It won in 1945 when... You know, I always say to people about Clem Attlee, you know, I ask them when he, when he came into government, and they say 1945, and I say no. He'd been Deputy Prime Minister throughout the war years. You know, the fact is the Labour Party in 1945 was the outcome of a whole set of thoughts and ideas, and it was a modernising project in 1945. And 1964 is exactly the same. It was a modernising project under Harold Wilson. White hot heat of technology, social liberalism, being added as a dimension to Labour thinking, and likewise in, in 1997. So I feel sad when people, you know, think that the answer is to go back, because it never is. And progressive parties only win when they're at the cutting edge of the future. If they become a, a, another form of small-c conservatism, they, they usually lose. And so how do you feel now, having led the Labour Party into three election wins? Do you think... Do you worry that Labour might never win again? There's no way Labour will win again unless it changes radically from where it is in my, in my view. I mean, I don't, there's no point kind of hiding that. And I think the evidence points to that. I mean, you know, when you're losing safe Labour seats to a second-term Tory government, you know, if you're not worried, then, you know, I, I think you've got to ask yourself some pretty serious questions. So... I think it's perfectly possible for Labour, and I hope it does recover itself, but it's going to have to recover itself radically. And this isn't a matter of the personality of the leader. It's, it's, a, 
we've got to understand where the world is. That we live in a world of accelerating change. You know, the next generation of technology is going to make even greater difference to the way people live and work and think. If the Labour Party is not able to comprehend that and engage from a public policy point of view with the modern world as it really is, then it, it, it's never going to appeal to sufficient numbers of people because that old industrial base you know, just isn't the same as it was 40, 50 years ago. I mean, I will say to people, when Sam Watson was the leader of the miners, the Durham miners back in the, in the, the 50s, National Union of Mine Workers was a huge, even in, just in County Durham, it was an enormous organization. All of that's gone. You know, so you've got to replace that coalition with a new coalition today. If you, you don't do that, then you're, you're, you're out of sync with the way the world is changing. And what that means is that, you, yes, you can appeal to a group of people and they will give you very vociferous and vocal support, but you've got no chance of reaching into the broad mass of people and forming a governing majority. Is part of the problem that there are, after you and Gordon, there wasn't another generation of big beasts in the Labour Party, either brought on or developed. Part of the reason that Jeremy Corbyn won was because the alternatives were pretty un, uninspiring and we look around now and there are people in the Labour Party now who are desperate for an alternative within the party and no one seems to be leading that alternative. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm always a sceptic about, you know, our generation's great but the next one's <laughs> not so good and I, I, I think there are lots of people there and, you know, I think... No disrespect to to Ed Miliband, but I think if David Miliband had won the leadership election in 2010, then the history of the party in the country might have been different. Would you like to see him come back? I always think there should be a place for David in, in British politics because he's such a um, you know intelligent and decent man. Um, but obviously that's for him. No, I think that there's, there's there's plenty of great people out there. And by the way, when I meet the younger generation, the people in their late 20s and early 30s. Um, Sadly, some of whom are not really involved in the Labour Party, but they're really interested in politics. I mean, that's a fantastic generation. There's real talent out there. But it's going to require us now, I think, from where we are now, you've just got to rebuild an entirely new coalition. You've got to be reaching out to people in a completely different way. And you do have to show people that there is a policy agenda for the future. And this is you know, what I'm working on now with this new institute. I mean, the centre ground's got to renew itself in terms of policy and ideas before it's able to renew itself in terms of political organisation. Do you think there could come a point where the Corbyn project of running the Labour Party damages the Labour Party to such an extent that actually it's no longer the vehicle for that centre ground and actually new parties need it? I don't, you know, I'm not advocating or in favour of new parties. I mean, I think the Labour Party can recover. You know, it's shown before in its history it's able to do that. I do, however, think the situation is serious and urgent. You've got more in common with the Lib Dems now than the current Labour Party. I mean, I wouldn't... <laughs> you know, there's always times in my political life when people have said, well, you've got more in common with these people <laughs> and these people rather than the Labour Party. But, you know, it's... I've always found it curious. You know, I was leader of the Labour Party for 13 years and people always tell me I didn't understand it and I don't understand it, but I do. I understand the Labour Party and I, study its, I studied its history and I study its history. But its history should show you that the one thing that is always fatal for a progressive party is self-indulgence and, and is falling for the absolutely false dichotomy between principle and power. If we weren't able to introduce things like a minimum wage and you know, civil partnerships and you 
I mean, just take something like the overseas aid program of the British government today that was founded by us, the International Development Department. I mean, there are millions of lives that have been touched by that around the world. I mean, these progressive things aren't done unless you're in power. I mean, obviously, in, on Brexit, for example, I probably do have more in common at the moment with the, the, the Lib Dems. And I think, by the way, I'm not tribal about politics, and I never have been. I think it's perfectly possible for people to cooperate across party lines. I think British politics would be more healthy if people did that. Same with American politics, by the way. Um, same with the politics on the continent of Europe today. You know, that's where I, I, I stand. So it's not that I feel a greater affinity with people outside my own political party. But, you know, I have to accept at the moment that the strain of Labour politics that I represent is obviously has obviously been marginalised within Labour. But I think the result of that marginalisation has not been to the Labour Party's advantage. I just wanted to finish by asking you, what, do you, what goes through your mind when you hear things can only get better? Did you become sick of the song or does it take you right back <laughs> to uh, that time in 97? Uh, no, it's, it's, uh, no I've, I've, of, co- of course it is a great ring of nostalgia to it. You know, I'm by nature... Um, forward-looking, not backward-looking. And it reminds me of, of, of what was a great, a great time. And, you know, we did change the sort of tenor and tone of, of what went on in the country. And one of the tragedies, to my mind, of Brexit is that it really is, in the end, a profound throwback to the past. Um, so, you know, when I hear things can only get better, you know, I mean, I'm more sort of amused and think of the more superficial memories. But when I think back in 1997, the advent of the Labour government, I mean, I think about it more in the context of today than I do back then, because I think that attitude of sort of forward-looking open-mindedness is still what's necessary in British politics today. And we mark the 20th anniversary you're going to get the old gang back together <laughs> the old band <laughs> stick the music on well <laughs> when you see all the bands that are touring nowadays from the 60s and 70s I think you know well there's always a place for us but um, we, we all stay in touch by the way so we don't really need to raise a glass as it were on the, the 1st of May 97 but in any event sort of metaphorically we will Tony Blair thank you very much thank you Thank you for listening to this episode of the Red Boxes series Lessons in a Landslide. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes using iTunes on your Android device and sign up to my morning Red Box email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Red Box. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.